You may have heard the, the saying, fight fire with fire. Firefighters, using it very literally, firefighters will sometimes set fires in order to put out fires. They will cut what is called a control line downwind from the fire to clear out the fuel at that control line. And then they may go farther upwind and set a fire to burn to that control line so that all of the fuel for the fire that is approaching is used up so that when it gets to these this this pre-burning and to this control line, it will eventually go out or become more manageable. So it's called um, fighting fire with fire. And I know that's used metaphorically as well, but uh, I was thinking this week as I, as I looked and thought about what to talk about. And uh, last week we talked about fighting against sinful fear. And this week I wanted to talk about fighting for godly fear. So fighting fear with fear. Is sort of my thought process as we as we look into this text, fighting f- sinful fear with godly fear. So this week we're going to look at Matthew ten twenty eight to thirty one, and as you, I know we're diving right down into the gospel. If you are familiar with the context, you'll see uh, the birth of the Messiah has taken place. Christ has he's grown up. He's entered into ministry. He's been baptized. He has he has defeated. The evil one's temptations fulfilling as the second Adam and succeeding where the first Adam had failed. He has gathered a group of disciples around himself. He has taught them well. You see such things as the Sermon on the Mount. They have seen him perform great miracles of healing and deliverance. And uh, now we come to the point where he is ready to send them out. And as he sends them out, he gives them warnings of dangers that they will face. And he doesn't want the danger to control them and fear of danger to control them. But he wants fear of God to control them so that they'll walk by faith through the trials for the glory of God. And so this week, I want us to remember that that the biblical pattern is putting off and putting on. We talked about that last week. Putting off sinful fear, putting on godly fear or the fear of the Lord. So we put on the fear of the Lord first and a knowledge of his sovereignty and love second. Main thing I want us to see as we come out of this text, as we're diving into it, uh, is fight to fight fear with fear, to replace fear of harm in this fallen world with fear of the Lord who loves you and is in control. Fight fear with fear, replace fear of harm in this fallen world with fear of the Lord who loves you and is in control. First point is prepare for life's dangers by cultivating a proper fear. Look back in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I know that we're, we're jumping in. There's a proper application to draw from this text that Christ is warning his, his disciples against fear of those who will hate the gospel and who will seek to destroy the gospel. And since they are promoting the gospel, they will seek to destroy them. But drawing out from that, I think it's proper to see how we might deal with any fear that we have in this fallen world. So fear of harm in the fallen world is sort of what we're looking at. And we're seeking to develop what Jesus is calling a proper fear. 
Don't let life controlling fear of harm in a fallen world be primary in your life. In fact, we want to eradicate that if we can. So how do we do that? It's by replacing sinful fear, fear of harm in a fallen world, life controlling fear of harm in a fallen world with a life controlling and blessing fear of the Lord. So Jesus said, don't 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 fear those who will kill the body. Don't fear anything in this fallen world that can take your life. Fear the God who is in control over your life, who has sent his son to die for our sins and pay for our sins, who assures us in that way of his love. So Jesus is telling his disciples, he's not telling them that they should ignore the danger. In fact, he's warned them and he doesn't tell us to ignore the danger. He tells us that in this world, we will have trouble, that there will be trials and tribulations for every saint who wants to live for him, but that he's with us in them and producing good through them so that we can have joy when we enter into the trials of this life. So he's not saying ignore the dangers. He gives warnings like you're going out as lambs among wolves. Now think about that. Wolves are in the field and you send a lamb out into that field, normally and ordinarily speaking, what's going to happen to that lamb? The lamb becomes lunch. But he is with them and for them and will accomplish his purpose in them and the same with us. He says, beware of men in verse 21. He tells them that some will die in verse 22. And they will be hated and they will be persecuted. So there's real danger. There's real danger for the original disciples living in this fallen world and seeking to be light and salt for Christ. And there's real danger for us living in this fallen world. We're not above the suffering that goes on in this fallen world. We participate in some of the common misery that happens in this fallen world, but we don't have to fear it. And we shouldn't fear it. There's another place for our fear to be. Directed. Look what he says again in verse 28. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one. Fear him. Fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't walk around in fear like there is no God, just looking at the dangers and looking at the troubles. And we we talked about that last week. But look up, look to your God. Remember who he is and how awesome he is and that he is your father if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is with you and for you. Jesus says, fear God. Let your overarching fear Be of God, the awesome, almighty God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but destroy there is not talking about annihilation. Think about this. It's the opposite of salvation. It is us paying the penalty for our sins. Think of the word. Same word is used of the wineskin. Don't put new wine in old wineskins because it would destroy, it says, the wineskin. That doesn't mean it annihilates it. Rips a hole in it. It devastates it. God is holy and righteous and just. And we must answer for our sin. And if we don't flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And receive the forgiveness of God that is in him. Then we have to face justice and wrath. 
do our sin. So destroy there is not speaking of annihilation. It's speaking of an eternal destruction, the opposite of salvation. You look at the end of Matthew 25 and other places for that. But Jesus is saying, don't fear the dangers that you will face. Fear the God who is with you. Same word, right? Fear God. Don't walk about in fear like God doesn't exist. Be wise, yes, but don't ultimately be fearful. But Jesus is not saying don't have any fear at all. Jesus is not saying there's no fear in the Christian life. Jesus is telling us how to have a fear that is good and productive replace a fear that is bad and counterproductive. And he calls, he says to fear the one, him who can destroy. In other words, in other places in scripture, it's talked about it is the fear of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord that we are to have, which replaces sinful fear. You might remember, and I don't know if these things are still popular, but I know at one time it was really popular to have t-shirts and bumper stickers and hats that say no fear. Or if the southern version said, ain't scared. But that's not the Christian life. God doesn't say have no fear. That's foolishness. The wicked have no fear. They fear, yes, they fear harm in the world, but no fear of God. I don't want to pick on that slogan too much, but just point out that we have to replace fear with fear. We have to fight fear with fear. We need an ultimate and an overarching fear that will deliver us from the worldly dangers and things that assault us on a daily basis. So Jesus is not saying have no fear, but he's saying have the right fear. Let the fear of God replace the fear of danger, the fear of man, the fear of things that could take your life and interpreting those things as if there's no God and and walking around terrified. Let your life controlling fear be the fear of the Lord. And some may hear that strange because we don't hear a lot of talk these days about the fear of the Lord. And people will say, well, we're not supposed to fear. You know, when you mention the fear of the Lord and you're right, you're not supposed to have sinful fears worries, anxieties. You're not supposed to interpret life as if there is no God and live life by mathematical probabilities and chance, but to live life focused on God. But God is to be feared when we understand that in a biblical way. See, Martin Luther would help us in that. He would say it's not a servant's fear, but a family fear. We're not to fear like one who is a slave that fears the lash of the master and is always cringing around him thinking he's about to be struck. But we're to have the fear of of the child of a good and godly father who loves that father and, and yes, fears in the right way his discipline. So that discipline shapes the life, but who loves him and, and desires to please him and certainly does not want to disappoint him. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? I hope someday maybe we'll do a whole series on the fear of the Lord. Because if you think about think about a diamond, if you've seen a diamond, I'm, I'm holding my hands like this. I've never seen a diamond that big. But if you look at a diamond, and especially if you magnify a diamond, 
The reason it is so sparkly and shiny and beautiful is that it has all of these facets carved into it. All of these multi and the fear of the Lord is like that. It is multifaceted. If you do a if you do a concordant search or or search your Bible software for the for the fear of God and the fear of the Lord and you read all of those verses, you'll see a lot of different things that are said about the fear of the Lord. Yes, there's trembling before the Lord in his word. He is an awesome, almighty, holy God. And, and, and that should produce a holy, reverential trembling before him in his word. But there's more than that. Love, delight, joyful. There's all sorts of facets to the fear of the Lord. And I would not be able to bring all of those out for you this morning as we look at this. So I, I, I found a definition from Sinclair Ferguson. I would pretty much recommend anything he ever says, writes, or does to you. So if, if, you, if you want a recommendation. But um, he has a little definition of the fear of the Lord that I thought I would at least mention the elements of it that he mentions in his definition. So Sinclair Ferguson says this. The fear of the Lord is that indefinable mixture See, the multifaceted nature of it. The indefinable mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts. Watch. It fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. So this, this reverent, you've heard this, a reverential awe, which, which we have of our God when we really understand who he is. And what he has done for us in Christ. But I thought I would just break down for a minute just those few things. Reverence, delight, and awe. Just to sort of whet your appetite to go maybe read and study more about the fear of the Lord. Should I fear the Lord? Yes. What does that mean and how do I do that? That's, that's a great study that we will just touch on this morning. But if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. I mean, the starting place is the fear of the Lord. If we don't fear the Lord, we have no true wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, like the first chapter, verse 7. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So whatever this fear of the Lord, it's, it's sort of the starting place for any good grasp of what true wisdom is, what true knowledge is, how we should understand God and his creation and how we are to live and move in that creation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we should thirst for the fear of the Lord and and discern what it is through the word of God and and see and pray that God would develop in us a growing fear of the Lord so that we love, trust, delight in, follow after, enjoy, joyfully obey him and are set free from our sinful fears by focusing on God. The better you know your God, the more your heart and mind is stayed on him, the more peace you will have in the midst of the storm. Isaiah in chapter 11, there's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. 
And you see, you might have thought I did, you know, afresh and anew this week. You know, did Jesus fear the Lord? Well, of course he did. If he's the embodiment of all truth and righteousness, he walked in the fear of the Lord. But Isaiah chapter 11 gives a prophecy of the coming Messiah, Messiah some 700 years before he was ever born. And I would encourage you, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Isaiah, to go do that. But Isaiah chapter 11, 2 and 3 says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The coming Messiah, Jesus. The spirit, watch this, of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge, and look look at this, and the fear of the Lord. Now watch, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This coming Messiah, they looked forward to. We look back and, and see that Christ has come. He is reigning. He is coming again. And then one of the things that says about him that will be characteristic of him and was and is obviously characteristic is that his delight is in the fear of the Lord. In this reverential awe that causes us to, to delight in and trust in and joyfully obey. Rest in our God. ESV Study Bible, one of the ones I would recommend to you, uh, Reformation Study Bible and others, but it had this in the, in the notes. It said, in contrast to the way in which others live in rebellion against God. See, that's no fear of God. That's worldly wisdom. That is, is not reading or understanding creation in light of who God is and what his word says. It says, in contrast, in the way in which others live in rebellion against God. This is commenting on Isaiah 11. It said, the coming Messiah will be the ideal in his human faithfulness. Finding deep joy. Watch this. Finding deep joy in living before his God and Father in reverence and in promoting reverence among those he rules. Reverence is is a great missing component in many parts of the church today. But it said the Messiah would delight in the fear of the Lord and promote the fear of the Lord and promote that reverence. And so Christ has delighted in his father as he lived, fulfilling all righteousness, uh, succeeding where Adam and Israel and us where we have failed. Uh, and he has ascended now. He is reigning in heaven. He is coming again because he was raised from the dead. Mention, I need to mention that. But first of all, if we go back to Sinclair Ferguson's definition and see what we've sort of developed so far, we see that one of the things the fear of the Lord is to is, is the fear of the Lord means that we revere God or we reverence God. We have a healthy and holy respect of God. Reverence him is to hold him in high honor. To seek to honor him in all that we do. You know, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So it's reverencing him is living for his glory. It's living for his honor. It's taking into consideration what he desires and seeking to line one's life up to that. Holding him as holy in all that we say and all that we do in how we worship in life. In general, he is now our reference point for life. A God-centered life. Talked about that last week. A God-focused life. A God-glorifying and honoring life. 
A life that seeks to reverence Him and honor Him in all that we say and do. Speaking of worship, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says this, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And having receiving that kingdom, receiving God's salvation in Christ, our, one of our responses in, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. We've talked about this before, but obviously if there's acceptable worship, there's worship that's not acceptable. It's not just a do as you please, kind of what you feel like. It should be worship according to the word of God. So let us offer to God acceptable worship. Now watch this. With reverence and awe. Talk about that in a minute. For our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. Not, not just casually approached. I mean, that didn't work out so well for people in the Old Testament. Because God is holy, not because he's mean. He is to be sanctified. He is to be revered. He is to be approached according to his word. Praise God, he's not striking dead all who are worshiping him in false ways these days. But there is an acceptable worship. There is a proper worship. It's a worship with reverence and awe of our God who is a consuming fire, who is holy and must judge sin. But in Christ, that consuming fire works for us and not against us. So we're to hold him in high honor. If we fear him, we will be holding him in high honor. He is the highest honor of our life. We're, as Matthew says in chapter six, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The fear of the Lord is to revere him. Secondly, according to Ferguson's definition, is to delight in him. He said pleasure, joy. I just used in the word delight. Basically the same thing. But the fear of the Lord is the delight in him. He is to be the highest delight that we have. The highest delight. And in his word we are to delight. Look at this. Psalm 112.1 says, One of the aspects of the fear of the Lord. Praise the Lord or hallelujah. Psalm 112.1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the person who fears the Lord. What does that mean? Comma. This is an apposition. This is expanding upon the fear of the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Comma. Who greatly delights in his commandments. One of the ways we know if we fear the Lord is if we delight in his commandments. We delight in his word. We delight to line up ourselves to his commandments and we grieve when we don't. We have a conviction of sin when we don't line up with his commandments. We're not sitting in judgment over him and his word to see if it's what we want and if it works for us. God has saved us and given us a new heart that he's tuned to his word, tuned to his commandments such that we desire to be completely free of sin and to walk in perfect accord with his commands. We know that'll be true when we're glorified. And it grieves us when we sin against him. One who fears the Lord is one who greatly delights in him and in his commandments. And that's searching. Think about that. When you look into what matters most, Paul said, is keeping the commandments of God. John said his love of God is to keep his commandments and they're not grievous. Oh, how I delight in your law, the psalmist says. Can we say that? 
when we read his word and especially when we focus in, when we read his commandments and we see how we've fallen short, we see how Jesus has succeeded. We see how he's rescued us and reconciled us to God. Has has God put in your heart a desire to glorify him by joyfully obeying him according to his commandments in his word rightly interpreted? Delight in the Lord and you shall have the desires of your heart. Why? Because your desires will line up with his will. He gives you not only the, he gives you the desires as well as the things that line up with his will. We are to desire to take pleasure in, to be inclined toward his commandments. See, the Christian life is not just, oh, you've been forgiven, now do as you please. We've talked about that before. Follow your heart is some of the worst advice you'll ever get. But we're to be putting to death our sin out of joy and love for the Lord because of what he's done for us in Christ. So another aspect besides reverence of the Lord is a delight in him and his commandments and a desire to to please him with our lives. And then thirdly, according to Ferguson's definition, the fear of the Lord is to be in awe of him. Is to be in awe of him. And we could go back to Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, but it said we offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Are you in awe of the Lord and of his salvation and of his grace to you in Christ? Does it leave you slack jawed knowing that you don't deserve it? Well, if if we're not in awe of God, we don't understand who he is. And if we're not in awe of his grace, we don't understand the greatness of what he has done. To be in awe is to be, we, we think about our mouths hanging open, right? You see something and you go. And then one of the words we use to express awe is, wow. We'll say, that's unbelievable. We don't really mean it's unbelievable. We're just accentuating the fact that it, it is something awesome, something we wouldn't have known or expected. It's a, feeling, it's a feeling of great respect mixed with fear or surprise. Great respect mixed with fear or surprise. It can be scary or not scary, right? But it's just this, wow. I mean, Isaiah was afraid when he saw the Lord, right? Woe is me. I've seen the Lord. Woe is me, right? If we've really seen outside of Christ and even in Christ, but outside of Christ, especially we see sort of we begin to grasp who God is and we begin to be woe is me and convicted and turning from our sin to him to receive his salvation if he's at work. So Ferguson's definition was that uh, the fear of the Lord is that indefinable mixture of reverence, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. Biblical fear, one of the outflows, I guess, of it or other nuances, it it produces trust in God. Because we see who he is and we see how mighty and high and lifted up he is. And and therefore we are grown in the fact that we can trust him. I mean, if he can speak the worlds into existence, if he can sustain them by the word of his power, 
he certainly can handle whatever little mighty little mini trial that comes into our life and compared. Our biggest trials are nothing compared to creation and other, other things we can see. Do you trust the God of the Scriptures? Do you see Him as almighty and victorious and His great name we praise? We, we sing that sometimes. Do you trust Him? You want to gauge how much fear of the Lord you have. You can how much do I trust him? That'll tell me how much I know him. Who he is and what he's done for me. How much I'm rested in him and, and delighting in him and reverencing him. One test is the cross. How do you see the cross? Do you see the? Do you look at the cross with disgust? Someone who was lost would look at the cross with disgust and see it cosmic child abuse and, you know, all sorts of critiques they would make against the cross. But those who know who God is and know what they deserve, who have been humbled by his word and humbled by his law and see that we deserve wrath, we don't deserve good from God, then we stand in awe of the cross. We are wow. By the cross. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. Jesus, he was perfectly righteous. He fulfilled all righteousness. Then why did he die? Because he was not only providing a perfect righteous status, a righteousness for his people that he would impute to them or give to them. Right? But he was also paying our sin debt. The soul that sins shall die. And Jesus went to the cross, not just to die physically, but to be destroyed, to take the wrath due our sin upon himself, to satisfy justice for his people so that all in whom he was at work who would come to faith in him, their sins are paid for. So our, our unrighteous record is obliterated and his righteous record before God is credited. To us. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. He has ascended and he is reigning. He is king now and he's coming again someday. And he offers salvation to you as a free gift if you've been struck with conviction and a willingness to turn to him to receive mercy. Are you in awe of his grace? demonstrated at the cross are you willing to receive his son as your only hope for salvation god be merciful to me a sinner the tax collector pray i pray that that is the attitude of all of our hearts because your good works won't get you to heaven you don't have any none of us has ever kept one commandment in thought word indeed all of our righteous attempts Isaiah, back to him, would say, our filthy rags. We must despair of saving ourselves and trust in Christ to save us. And he is sufficient for that because he has fulfilled all righteousness with his life. He has died to fully pay for our sin and he was risen from the grave, proving it's all true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you have life this morning? I pray that you do and that you're growing 
in this fear of the Lord, that you are focused primarily on who your God is and that you are interpreting your trials in light of who he is and knowing that he is for you and with you and will take you all the way home. We will grow in true fear of God as we grow in a true knowledge of God, first by coming to faith and then by learning more about him and his ways and his will from his word. So firstly, we prepare. We prepare for life's dangers by cultivating a proper fear, which is a fear of God. First thing Jesus said to his disciples. Secondly, from verses 29 to 31, we prepare for life's dangers by cultivating a proper perspective. So a proper fear and a proper perspective. And again, this is a Godward perspective, obviously. Just like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious, but be God-centered. Here, he's telling his disciples and reminding them again to not be fearful of, of physical death in this fallen world, but to fear God and trust God. So secondly, we, we want a proper perspective. Look what he says in verse 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Sparrows were the cheapest thing sold in the marketplace. And some, some versions won't say, some translations won't say penny. I personally don't think <clears throat> penny is a good representation here because this word stands for one sixteenth of a day's wages. <clears throat> and if a penny is one sixteenth of your day's wages, you need another job. But it was the smallest coin. And so the sparrows were the cheapest things sold. They were the smallest and most insignificant thing. <clears throat> you know, only the very poor might be in line for that. But look what he says. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Now watch this. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Better translation is are other translations that say apart from your father's will. That's more that's better bringing out the meaning of the word behind that in the original. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Now, was Jesus interesting in studying sparrows with his disciples that day? No, he's using them as an illustration of God tending to the least of things in his creation, that his decree is all comprehensive, that it covers everything, even the falling of a sparrow. Or, or look at this. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Not one sparrow falls apart from the will of God. Not one hair will fall from your head apart from the will of God. You know, nothing's hard for God, so it's not hard for God to number anything. But humanly speaking, some of us create less of a problem than others with counting hairs on our heads. You may have no more hairs to fall to the ground. And that's okay. God knows you have no hairs on your head. But the point of all this is that he's in complete control. 
It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, which was common, you know, among among the rabbis and, and among the scholars and in Scripture. You know, if God cares, and we saw it in Matthew chapter 6 that we just read last time. If God cares for these small things, will he not care for you? And here, if, if God is in control all the way down to these very tiny, what we think of as very tiny things. Is he not in control of everything? Of all things. Nothing is beyond him here. He's talking about his his sovereignty, his problem, his rule and his his government of his creation. He he has created and he sustains and he governs all that is everything plays out in accord with his decree. We we don't have to fear. That's how he can guarantee us. And we've talked about before in Psalm 139 that every one of our days are written down before there was one and nothing can interrupt that. God is sovereign. What does that mean? There are no limits to his rule. He rules over absolutely everything in this world without being the author of sin or taking away responsibility, human responsibility. We do are responsible to and we do make real choices. And yet all of the outflow lines up perfectly with the will of God without him being responsible for sin and without him taking away what theologians call second causes, everything under the first cause. He directs everything down to the smallest detail. Not one sparrow falls apart from his will. And just look at your Bible. I'm not making this up. It's right there. All of your hairs on your head are numbered. Not one of them falls out apart from the will of God. He's in control down to the smallest detail. R.C. Sproul was fond of saying and through his writings and teachings still says that there's not one maverick molecule in the universe. God is sovereign over everything in his creation. Charles Spurgeon said this. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And I say a hearty amen. I don't know how you have any peace in this fallen world without a thorough understanding of God's sovereignty. No attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under Now watch this. Why do we need to know about his sovereignty? What fruit will it pay in our lives? Under the most adverse circumstances and in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions. And that sovereignty overrules them and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. Substitute God there for where he uses sovereignty. In the more severe troubles, they who? God's children. God's children believe that in the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that God has ordained their afflictions. Same, same, same thing. That God overrules them. And that God will sanctify them all. In other words, he will make them all work for his children. Ultimately, no trouble, trouble, no struggle, no, no trial, no difficulty harms us. Ultimately speaking. It hurts us, right? But we trust our God and know that 
He works all things together for good. He can only promise that if he's sovereign and in control. If he's Lord of the sparrows and the hares and the molecules and everything else. And so in God's sovereignty, there's a lot we can't figure out. I mean, mentally, we can't reconcile between sovereignty and responsibility and how that all plays out. We're not meant to. We're given the doctrine of sovereignty because it's true, number one, and because we need it in order to have peace in this world and rest in our Savior, knowing that we came to Christ because he was at work in us. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of dying in this world. Fear God and know that he's in control. And that he is fulfilling his purpose in you and through you, whether your head is crowned or cut off as you go out and live for him. We win. See, that's the only way I know that we can count it all joy when we fall into various afflictions and troubles because we know he's in control and we know he's at work through it. Romans 5, that's the only way I know that we can rejoice in our troubles. See, this tests us as well. How much am I living in the fear of God and how much do I understand who my God is? How much do I really believe in his sovereignty? Because if I do, I will see things the way Charles Spurgeon is laying out here. And I will believe that the most severe troubles, the most adverse circumstances have been ordained by God. And that He overrules them and that He will sanctify them all. See, clearly, clearly demonstrated in the book of Job and other places. Clearly demonstrated in Jesus' life. Clearly demonstrated in our life. Trust your God. Know that he's in control. And one more thing Jesus wants his, his disciples to know and one more thing he would want us to know. Fear, the, fear not. Verse 31. Fear not. Sinful fear not. Don't sinfully fear. Fear God. Know this. He said, fear not therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Lesser to the greater. You are of far more value than the sparrows. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He counts all your tears. The psalmist says he has them in a bottle. He feels all your affliction. He asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? He's closer than a brother. He is living in us and dwelling in us by his spirit. And we are of far more value than any else, anything else in creation. Why? Well, starting in Genesis, male and female created in the image of God. Given dominion over creation. See, there's a difference. Redeemed by the sacrifice of his son. Listen. The cross doesn't prove how lovely you are. And how worthy of love you are. The cross proves how lovely he is. And how he has set his love on a very undeserving people. What scripture calls his enemies. So that we'll rest in him. But see. A lot of people struggle with knowing that God loves them. You know why we struggle? Because we look at our feelings. Do I feel like God loves me? You know how to fix that? Forget about yourself and look to the cross. That's how you know God loves you. 
Because you see on the cross a Savior who died for sins and not just sins in general, but for your sins. And by God's grace, you have turned from your sin to trust in that Savior. And if you have any love for Christ and any faith in Christ, it's because God worked that in you. And if that is in your life, you can know that you are loved by God, not just generally loved, but redemptively loved, reconciled, redeemed by the sacrifice of his son on the cross. You can rest in him. And if you're not in Christ this morning, you can have this salvation simply by receiving the free gift, turning from sin and selfishness and holding on to your own little kingdom, opening up to God, forgetting rebellion against him and submission to adopting submission to him, receiving the free gift of his son as your savior. And then you, too, can know. That because he is high and lifted up and to be feared, because he is sovereign and reigning over everything, because he is accomplishing all his purpose and his gospel will go to the ends of the earth and there will be a people around his throne from every tribe, tongue and nation. You too can know. That everything is being worked together for your good. If you're unwilling to trust Jesus, if you're unwilling to receive salvation, you cannot claim that promise. This is good as it'll be for you. I don't say that to be mean. I say that to say, turn, trust. I plead with you to repent and to trust Christ. If God is at work in you this morning, don't put it off. If he's used this difficulty with the coronavirus to, to sort of scare you or, or to get your attention or to cause you to consider more than just this world and your stuff, don't procrastinate. Cry out to Him. Cry out to Him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Trust in His Son and He will save you. And He will reconcile you. So just a couple of questions and I'm done. Only you know this. What are you afraid of? What fears are dominating your life? Maybe it is the coronavirus. It's probably not the most dominant one. And maybe it's highlighting the most dominant one, which is fear of death, which Jesus came to deliver us from. But what are you most afraid of? And are you interpreting this thing that's scaring you in light of who God is? Hopefully you're trusting Christ and so he's truly your father. Whatever it is you are afraid of, I want you to take it and place it in the context of who your God is. And if you need help getting to know your God better, that's why we're here. That's what we want to help you with. But fear, worldly fear, fear of things of this world, be it people coming against you and putting you to death or viruses or whatever, God would not have that dominate your life. Replace that with a fear of God. So how do we replace that? Those fears with the fear of God. Well, we refocus on who he is in his word. It's kind of like last week when I talked about praying that God would take anxiety away and then looking inside to see if he took it away. Mm -mm. Ongoing command, right? The more we know our God and the more we know what is true and focus on what is true, the more the more we are in prayer to him and and growing in his grace, the more fear we'll have of him biblical way, reverential awe and delight and yes, trembling before him and his word. And therefore, the more we'll be set free from our fears. 
So refocus on knowing your God. There's, there are a few studies that are more fruitful than a study of the attributes of God. The names of God and the attributes of God. Start there. If you don't know your God. Focus on who He is. Focus on what He's promised to those who trust Him. Focus on what He's done for you in Christ. And if He'll sacrifice His Son for you, He won't withhold anything good. He's in control. And every trial that comes into your life is like a sculpture, a chisel in the hand of a sculpture, just chiseling away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. So look to Him. Trust Him. Pursue a knowledge of Him. And know that you're doing that because he's working in your heart to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And then last thing I would say that what is the ultimate purpose of us still being here, of us hearing this sermon, of us being shaped by, you know, God working through what's going on in the culture? What is the ultimate purpose of our being here and walking in the fear of the Lord? One word, witness. Yes, overarchingly, we want to glorify him in all that we do. But as his church, we are still here that we might have the privilege of speaking of the glory of our God. We're still here to to come alongside those around us, not to be judgmental and legalistic and mean and look down our nose at people. But we see our neighbor afraid and we hear our neighbors afraid and we lovingly and patiently point them to the one who can deliver them from that fear. And we don't stop short of talking about Christ and the cross and repentance and faith. We're still here as we're studying in Acts. The one word summary is witness. We're still here to be what he calls us and says that we are light and salt for Christ. See, that's what he's sending these disciples out to be after he, and he's not finished with their training, keep reading the gospels, but he's called them to himself. He's revealed himself to them. He's taught them. And now he's weaning them from any dependence on themselves. And he's going to send them out to be witnesses. The same thing we can do in the midst of this difficulty. In conclusion, scripture never tells us that we will never be afraid. Even sinfully afraid. And one of the most repeated things in Scripture is fear not. Why? Because we fear. But what His Word does and what Jesus does and what He's doing through this text is showing us what to do with that fear. To run it to the cross, confess it as unbelief, put it in the context of who your God is and receive comfort and be delivered from that fear. See, we won't be, we won't have all sinful fear removed until we're glorified but we should be aimed at growing in grace of putting our sinful fears in the context of of the fear of the Lord and seeing them obliterated, washed away, seeing ourselves delivered from them. So God tells us how to address our fears. As we are to fight fire with fire sometimes, we fight fear with fear. We fight sinful fear with the fear of the Lord. We replace the fear of harm in this fallen world with the fear of the Lord who loves you and is in complete control so that you can rest in him and live for him. I want to end with a reading like I did last week. This time I'm pointing you to uh, another great summary of the Christian faith that I would encourage you to go read the whole thing. This first question is a summary of what's laid out in the entire catechism. I'm speaking of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
But I want to read question one for you and have you focus your eyes on it. And this just comes. This is a summary of what scripture teaches. So you you can look up a, a version of this that has the proof text and you can go read the word around it. But watch this. This is beautiful. I, I'll never. The first time I read this question, my jaw dropped open and I said, wow, honestly. But look at this question. One of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Now watch how it answers that question. And this is how scripture answers that question. That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. And He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would be powerfully at work in our hearts. Those who don't know you, maybe even they think they do, but they've, they've been deceived that you would be bringing, creating repentance and faith through the preaching of your word, that you would be bringing those who don't know you to trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would be at work in us, Lord, growing us in a proper fear, which is a fear of the Lord. Help us to grow in better understanding what scripture means by that. We're not walking around like beaten slaves who are cringing and thinking we're about to be struck, but we have a loving, gracious, glorious, merciful, heavenly Father. Help us to love you. Love the Father in the Son, by the Spirit, Lord, a Trinitarian salvation. Work in us love for you that produces in us a trembling before you and your word, a reverence of you in life and worship, a, a awe of you and a delight in you that is expressed by a, a growing and unflinching trust in you and an intentionality in living for you. So Lord, save, bring to conversion, convert your people, Sanctify your people. Grow us in grace. Use your word preached powerfully to accomplish your purpose. Thank you, Father, that we are here and that we know you and that we have this privilege. Help us this week to live more faithfully for you than we did last week. And as we as we wait on you in this trial, Lord, this 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 is hard for us to be separated. Help us to wait in faith. Help us to wait in love. Help us to do everything we can do, each one of us, to preserve the unity of the body and to preserve the ongoing growth of the body. And help us all, Lord. We're afraid sometimes and we're intimidated and we're, we're so many things go through our hearts, but help us to be growing witnesses for you who joyfully speak 
of the Lord Jesus Christ who sets us free to fear and love our God and to live for his glory. Bless us, Lord, to walk with you, we pray. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen.